0: Shabbat shalom. Good to see everyone and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. I'm Monty Judah with Line of Land Ministries and this is the B'nai Shalom uh, Arab Shabbat, the beginning of Sabbath service. And thank you for welcoming us into your home or wherever you're at uh, to begin the Sabbath together. A couple of quick housekeeping announcements for everyone. I want to remind everybody that we're in the counting of the Omer. And uh, that uh, coming up at the conclusion of that will be the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. I hope you're planning on uh, being a part of that somewhere. Uh, If you're able to join us uh, for the weekend of June 2, 3, and 4, June 4 is Shavuot. Here in Norman, uh, we're hosting a Shavuot conference. If you'd like to be a part of that, uh, register uh, at our events, uh, for events on our website, and we'd love to have you come and join us. We have a conference center there where you can come and have lodging and meals, and it's a beautiful facility for us to come and, and spend time with the Lord together. Um, also, I want to remind everybody that uh, next week, Wednesday night, May 17th, at 7:30 p.m., we will broadcast the question and answer program. Uh, and uh, again, I want to remind everybody that we do that once a month. If you have some questions, biblical questions you'd like to ask, it's, you can send those in to QA at LionLamb.net, and they can be a part of those broadcast programs. So join us on uh, Wednesday, May 17 at 730 Central Time, uh, and you can see the QA program that we have. Uh, last week Ephraim shared with you about um, Camp Yeshua coming up this is our youth camp that we do every year this year we have a record number of teens and youth coming to the camp and each year some of those teens don't have the necessary funds it's quite a bit expense for them to travel from wherever they're coming wherever in the country and then to be able to come to attend the camp and the expenses for it. So we've always set up what we call a campership. It's like a a scholarship thing. For those that are in need, uh, and if you would like to be a part of Camp Yeshua, I, you know, even though you're not 14 through 18 years of age uh, to come, you can still be a part of of uh, Camp Yeshua in enabling and helping some other teens to be able to come and join with us. And we have a number of teams that are requesting financial assistance to help them to come. And so, if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, you can send a donation in. Uh, to lion and lamb and just designate it as a campership for camp yeshua and we'll apply it to those teens uh, that are coming in for the program and thank you for considering that and um, helping us out for that all right without any further ado let's get our uh, kiddish underway and we'll begin to enjoy sabbath
1: Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath.
2: Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher lehad lekner shel Shabat Amen. Blessed art Thou, Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us by His commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations, and has given us the
3: issue of the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen.
2: Bless the wine. Adonai, bore agafen, amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates, who creates the fruit of the of vine.
4: vine. Amen. One
2: beautiful bread. Hamotzi
0: Hamotzi
2: lechem in haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together As our joyful prayer is said Baruch at Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Hamotzi lechem in haaretz Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, God, King God, King of the universe,
1: who brings, brings forth bread from out of earth. the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless
2: her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay. Now we do the blessings over the sons. Yes, yeah, that's you. <laughs>
5: Shabbat shalom.
1: Shabbat shalom.
5: shalom. shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. Don't
2: blow the candles out again. Not this time. It's so smoky. <laughs> okay, you ready? Ready, look. Help on. Ready? Adonai. Hello, hey, my car. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and has commanded us to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen.
5: Amen. Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch
3: Eloheinu melech
5: Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King Heal of the kids. universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. Hey, hey. Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz.
3: We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech haolam ha lechem min
5: ha Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen.
2: Yeah, it's all right.
5: Now for the blessing of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household, I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons.
3: cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. May you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. May God
4: make you a good husband
3: and may He prepare a holy wife for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace family grow. like
6: your name whose kingdom is forever and ever yeshua the messiah
5: he is lord amen shabbat shalom shalom. if you would open your scriptures to the book of leviticus to chapter 21 and as you are opening the scriptures there let me do the blessing before the torah Barechata Arunai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Barchabanu Mikol Ha'amim Venatanlanu Et Torah Toh Barechata Arunai Nontein HaTorah Ha'amein. Blessed are You, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us Your Torah. Blessed are You, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Imor, which comes from the first phrase of chapter 21 of Leviticus, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. The word speak or say is the word "Emor." This is in contrast to the word command. We had a previous Torah portion entitled Zav, which meant to command. Our tour portion extends from chapter 21 through 24. And in fact, you can see an example here at the start of Leviticus chapter 24, where the Lord says to Moses, command the children of Israel to bring pure oil. And so we're t- we have this opportunity here to compare these two different ways of speaking. That word command, sav, what it is, is that's made up of two Hebrew letters, a sadeh, and a vav. The zade is a fish hook, and the and the vav is a nail. And when you command something, there's almost there's an abrasive nature to it. But it's something that has to be done. Something to to catch a fish, you have got to put a hook in that fish's mouth. To attach something, it has to be nailed to something. And when you command something to take place, it's essential that it is done. And it sometimes has to be done in a in an abrasive way. In fact, when we talk about those commands, when when it says for Moses to command the children of Israel, it has to do with the bringing of the burnt offering. It has to do with the bringing of the oil for the menorah. These things that are perpetual statutes in the tabernacle, these things that must go on continually that God commands the children of Israel to do. So by contrast, what what is it to say or to speak to the children of Israel? Well, that Hebrew word and more is made up of three Hebrew letters. An Aleph, which means strength. A Mem, which often means waters. And then Resh, which means head. And so what one has always said is that when you speak something, it's the strength of the head waters. And when you hear that, you might think of a river, so to speak. When you go to a river and even the greatest rivers in the world, whether it be the Nile, the Jordan, the Mississippi River, the Colorado River, wherever you go, if you were to ever go to the headwaters, you'd always be surprised because what you end up finding is a small spring, a small little trickle of water coming out of a rock or from, from just a small place. And it's not a big rushing w- river. And these headwaters are always, it starts out small, but you know what the river looks like further down. It's a flowing river that provides life and does a great number of things and might have some strength to it. And so then when you talk about those headwaters, well, what is it? It's something small. It's something almost quiet, if you will. So if you're to speak something, and we all, we need to understand this when we speak to our brethren, speak to our families, that we do it in a soft way. Because when, even though something might come off as soft or humble, the father has a way of for those words to become something strong later, that those will resonate into the future with those that you speak to. This is the nature of what it is to speak things and to instead of commanding it to be the case. We instead speak it with a soft voice, but then God has the ability to make it become a great and powerful thing. This goes back to another word study that I always like to do, the word nefesh, which is soul, which that's made up of a noon, a pay and a shin. And that middle letter pay means a mouth and to speak. And so every living soul has the ability to speak noon life or shin destruction. So each of us have who have a living soul. This is how we interact with the world. This is how we make an impact. And we all have the ability to speak things into existence. And all everything that we say has the ability to either speak life into someone or speak destruction. But it all begins with a small word. That's what it is we can study here with this word more. So what is being spoken to the priests, to the, um, to the sons of Aaron to do? We're still in the book of Leviticus. We're still in the process of learning these procedures of the tabernacle. And this passage and this one here in chapters 21 and 22 are directed toward... Aaron and his sons now I've said before that um, the book of Leviticus has a stigma about it that it always is just a bunch of archaic Levitical commandments but most of the passages of Leviticus are to the children of Israel are to the common man are to all of us to learn certain instructions but here's one of the cases in which we're speaking to the sons of Aaron to for their conduct and how they are to act and operate and not defile themselves As priests to the Most High. So one of us, so we might often skip over this verse. Well, I'm not a priest, so why would I study this? However, there is a very practical application to this. The priests are intercessors between the people and God. They are the elect of God to represent him to perform the services of the tabernacle. One can look at anyone in an area or station of leadership whether that be a pastor of a church, whether that be a manager of an organization, and that you can draw principles out of these passages. This is conduct that is good for leaders and teachers and intercessors in the house of God. So we can draw principles of that, that if you're the leader of your own house, if you're the leader of a greater fellowship or a congregation, that you would take some of these principles that you learn and recognize them, take them to heart, that there is a different set of standards and a protocol to follow when you are in these various stations of life. So with that as a preface, let's start talking about our passage here. Here at chapter 21, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron and say to them, none shall defile themselves for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter or his brother or his virgin sister who is near to him, who has no husband for her. He may defile himself. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among the people to profane himself. This is a. Uh, Position of authority That he is to remain clean In all the processes that he does However we have stipulations here If you come in contact with a dead person You become unclean For this priests, they are allowed to become unclean. They can defile themselves for the sake of their family members, their near of kin, their blood relative, that they can mourn properly and appropriately with them, and that through the process they can become clean again and then can continue to perform the procedures. But they are to be mindful of not profaning themselves and not becoming unclean. It continues on. They shall not make a bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beard or make any cuttings in their flesh. This was a common procedure when one was to mourn or to lose a loved one. That this was the way they would either pull their hair out, shave their beards, or cause a cut in their flesh to mourn for the dead. They are to not do that especially. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. They are to marry a godly woman, somebody who is holy, righteous, and not somebody who has maybe a reputation about them that one would look down upon. This is very common for a preacher, a pastor of a church, whatever it might be. If the wife of the pastor is... Uh, has a reputation, has something negative about them. It's very hard for that preacher to gain respect and to truly lead the people in a way because there's a distraction, if you will, uh, a distraction where you're, you're maybe concentrated on. You look beyond the man and you only see possibly the sin of his wife. Or the sin of his daughter maybe. Which that passage continues on here. Where it says uh, the daughter of any priest. If she profanes herself by playing the harlot. She profanes her father. These are family members near of kin to somebody who is a leader amongst the people. That these are things that are not to be distractions for somebody to do the service of the Lord. To be a leader. To be an intercessor between the people and God. These are things to be mindful of. So, whether, so these being commandments for the priests. We can take this to heart. If you are in a position of leadership, you should be mindful of these things and who you choose to marry and who and and leading your household appropriately. Because if you become unclean, there is a different protocol. There is a different standard for these priests because of the position that God has put them in. So we have to be more mindful as leaders of congregations, fellowships, organizations. You have to be more mindful of your actions. And how those reflect upon you. In verse 10 it continues on even for the high priest. Where it talks about the anointing oil is upon his head. He's not to leave the sanctuary or not to uh, go out to the people. And he has to be even more careful with this. That he can't even come into contact and defile himself for his father or his mother who's passed away. He's to remain even especially clean. And then for him to who he is to marry has to only be a virgin of his own people for he can have a wife, but even a deeper, more specific stipulation for the kind of wife he's allowed to marry. It continues on continuing to speak to Aaron here. Verse 16, no man among your descendants of the descendants of Aaron in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach To offer the bread of his God for any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long. A man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron and the priest who has defect shall come near to make offerings to the fire to the Lord. This is an interesting stipulation here where, again, you question, wouldn't it be okay? We would want to always... Um, offer to the person who might have a defect, whether they're born with it or, or, or not, we would always want to grant favor and grace. Well, in the sanctuary of God, he desires the position to be, not be one of strict holiness that you're not distracted by any other thing. You're not distracted because somebody has a different looking limb or they have some other condition that would cause them to appear differently, like a marred face in this specific place. They are to be most holy so there is no distraction when dealing with the sanctuary of the tabernacle. It goes on to say they may eat of the offerings. They may eat the bread that the priests are allowed to eat. They're just not to go into the sanctuary, into the most holy place, in the most holy positions of leadership. Again, we don't want these things to be distractions. Now, in our modern day, would there be something wrong with somebody who has a defect, a testimony to share that somebody there's motivational speakers with all kinds of conditions and what it is is they do speak and they encourage, but what it is, and so I have no problem with that and I wouldn't take this, what's being said here to to look down on anybody who's in that position who might have a defect in, in that way. But however, when it comes to the most holy work of the Lord, we don't want any distractions. We don't want the people focusing on anything else except the service of the Lord. Amen. It goes on here at chapter 22 where it talks about um, the sons of Aaron. Um, coming in to, uh, worship before the Lord. Let me read here. Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name, but what they dedicate to me, I am the Lord say to them, whoever of your descendants throughout your generations goes near to the holy things with the, which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord. While he is un, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Whenever a man, a descendant of Aaron, who is a leper or has a discharge, he shall not eat the holy offerings until he is clean. And it continues on on other various ways that one might be unclean. We just got done with the passage about a defect. Something that in a, somebody's body or their look, those things are not Unclean. Remember, we talked about um, eczema or something in the passage about leprosy. Those things were not did not make somebody unclean. So chapter 22 now talks about what if somebody is unclean, as declared by Torah, that they are not to come into the presence of the Lord. They're not to eat of the offerings until they are made clean again. So if a son of Aaron developed, became a leper and became unclean until he was cleansed, he could not do any of the service of the tabernacle. I do want to talk about something here. There's a Hebrew word when it says that for anyone who goes near to the holy things of the children of Israel, that Hebrew word there is karev, which is made up of a kuf, a resh, and a bet. That's a very interesting word. And my good friend Rico Cortez has a great teaching about encroachment, of not approaching the uh, holy things of the Lord in an unworthy manner. I love this word karev because the uh, Hebrew word word picture is very interesting. The kuf, which means the back of a head. The resh, which means the head. And then you have the bet, which is the house. So what it is is to go near, and this is always done in a negative connotation. We do not want to go near to the holy things of the Lord in this way. So what is this way that you would do it? It's as if to approach the head of the house from behind, if you will. That Hebrew letter that talks about the back of the head. You don't want to approach the head of a house from behind. There's a protocol. There's a proper way to approach the head of the house. You go before him and you when you are an invited guest into the house of the Lord. And this is the whole this is the whole thing that we're continuing to talk about here. The service of the tabernacle is the house of God that we are invited to come into the house of God to worship him. We're invited to do uh, to give peace offerings and do business with the Lord. And so what we always want to do is we want to follow the proper protocol, the proper way of doing things. We don't come in the back door. The person who goes into the back door of someone's house is a thief, is someone who sneaks in, who's somebody who is not an invited guest and is not permitted to be there. Someone who is an invited guest, you go to the front door. You're invited in. You're invited to a place to sit. And this is the whole thing that we've been talking about with this tabernacle. And this is the analogy that we can take and apply in our own lives. And we establish our house. When you invite someone to your house, you don't want them knocking at the back door. You want them knocking at the front door. When they approach, you want them to be clean. You want them to be dressed appropriate. And we've been spending a lot of time in the book of Leviticus talking about the children of Israel. What makes them clean? What makes them unclean? In the same way that you would not accept somebody coming into your home who is dirty, not dressed appropriately, covered in dirt. You do this with your own children that you don't come. You don't invite them to your dinner table until they've washed their hands. They've been playing in the mud and in the dirt. And you say, no, you are not going to come to my table. You are not going to join and be a part of this family until you have washed your hands and come and and, have been made yourself appropriate to do the business of the household. In the same way that when you enter into someone's house, there's protocol, there is procedure. There are some people that prefer that you take off your shoes when you come into the door. They keep their carpet clean and you, you follow the protocol of the house, whatever has been established. You're invited to a table and you have a place to sit. You don't go and immediately sit at the head of the table. You're showed where your place is to sit. And all of these things are appropriate. So you, so there's two things in play here. One, the invited guest has to be clean, appropriate, holy, and ready to do business with the Lord. But then what we're talking about in our passage here is the servants of the house have to be clean, have to be appropriate. If you've been invited into someone's house and the servant of the house or the person who's coming and bringing your food, if you see their hands are dirty and unclean, covered in dirt as they set your plate of food down in front of you you would, there would be an offense. There would be something like, wait a minute, did, did you wash your hands? Did you wash, if you pick up your spoon and it's not clean or whatever else has been given to you or served a glass, a glass of water and it's dirty and it's fogged up. You're like, may I get a different glass is what you, what you would say. And you would have this kind of mm, feeling. You'd go back with your wife and on the drive home, you'd be like, we're not going back to that house. If there's an inappropriateness, if there's an uncleanness, if you will, in that house. This is what we're talking about here. When we're talking about the service of the tabernacle and we're talking about the cleanliness of the priests is that everything in the house is in order. Everything, not only from the guests being clean to come, but the servants of the house being clean and appropriate. The same thing if you were to go to someone's house, if they hadn't cleaned the restroom, if they hadn't straightened up the common areas of the house and there's an appropriateness and a protocol. And when we're talking about approaching the holy things of the tabernacle, we're talking about the holy of holies, the most holy places. Those are the that's the private chamber of God where you're talking about the place where the Ark of the Covenant was in the same way that an invited guest, If they walked in and immediately started walking toward your bedroom where your private chamber is there would be an offense. There would be something that is not appropriate taking place. If someone were to go back into that private chamber, this is the same protocol that was in the tabernacle. And it's the same protocol we set up in our own houses. This is what all of these things mean. You can take this application if you really can associate the tabernacle, the holy of holies being someone's private bedchamber, the um, sanctuary being the place in which very the most holy business takes place where there's no other distractions, where everything is in order and appropriate. And then when the meal is cooked, everyone is clean. The meat is clean. The food is clean and everything is appropriate. If you study the tabernacle in this way, then the application to our personal lives becomes Very clear and apparent. These are not passages to skip over and to glaze over, even though we're talking about the sons of Aaron and the priesthood that doesn't exist anymore physically as we sit here today. These are still applications we take to our own in our own houses and in our own lives. It continues on talking about the various offerings that have to that are accepted that these offerings and the food I just mentioned that the food that's served has to be clean has to be appropriate and any offering that was given this couldn't you couldn't bring a blind animal an animal with a defect or that had a broken leg or had scabs and scars or, or something like that that the bull or the lamb or whatever was being offered had to be clean appropriate in the same way that a food being served has to be done with, you don't, you don't serve guests food that is expired, that is something wrong with it, or it was, in fact, you know, you get meat on sale sometimes, and it's a little bit old, maybe it's starting to turn brown, it's not as pink as it was, it doesn't look as good, you know, it's, it's still okay to eat in your own house, that's okay, but that's not what you serve guests. That's not what you would bring to the Lord as an offering before him. And he concludes all of this here at verse 31 of chapter 22. Therefore, you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Amen and amen. Now that we have our house in order, now that the servants are clean, now that the guests are clean, now what do we do? What is the time that now once all of these things are appropriate, then what? how would you do this in your own home? Well, if the house is clean, if the servants are trained, the dishes are clean, the food is ready and are prepared. Guests are that we invite are clean and ready. Well, then what you do? Well, then you have a party. Then you have a feast. Then you have something, that a reason to invite the person in. And here now, beginning at Leviticus 23, we have exactly that. We have the listing of the seven feasts to the Lord, God's appointed times. Aspects of these things have been discussed in other parts of Scripture. In Exodus, we learned about uh, the Passover and we learned about some of these other feasts and sacrifices that are appropriate at various times. But here we now talk about the appointed times in which now these are the times to meet with God. Once the house is in order, once the servants are trained, once the people are ready, it's now time to do business. It's time to have a party. It's time to be with the Lord, be in the presence. So that's why we have the appointed times. In Leviticus 23, it begins with the Sabbath. It begins with the weekly occurrence of resting from your, uh, from your day's work, the labors of the week, and you rest. And you have a holy convocation, which is a meeting which is a set-apart meeting with someone, with a loved one, with somebody that you care about, with someone you enjoy fellowshipping with. And we've always said in my household, in my family, and we've counseled with others to say, Sabbath is to be a delight. And how people question, how do I keep Sabbath? I don't know how to do this. What it is, is you're inviting the Lord into your home. You would not do anything that you would do if you had an invited guest. So would you do various things that you do on every day? You wouldn't go to work if you have a guest coming to your home. You would be home with them. You would share with them. You would speak with them. For any other activity going on within the family, do it as if the Lord was present with you. That's the best way that we've ever, the simplest and best way that we've ever counseled with people to how to keep the Sabbath. Let it be a delight and let it be as if you're inviting the Lord into your home. Once we understand how to do the Sabbath, well, then there's a whole series of other feasts that we can enjoy. Whether it's Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where where there's holy convocations associated with those things. We just got done with Passover at a time in which we, on the 14th of Nisan, is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days eating unleavened bread. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation as well. We've celebrated these things recently in our Torah cycle. And it continues on to another uh, holiday called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, this is the one that it's always good to go over these things and and maybe make some of these corrections because there's some confusion here about the Feast of First Fruits when it talks about the day after the Sabbath that talks about each festival is commanded on a certain date out of the year. It says which month, it says which day. But the Feast of First Fruits it doesn't say that. Instead it says the day after the Sabbath. Now within Judaism, we've often they celebrate this feast every year on the sixteenth of Nisan, on the day after the first Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But that's not really what the scripture says here. It says the day after the Sabbath. So that could be confusing. Is it the weekly Sabbath or is it a holy convocation associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, if you read on and start talking about the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, which we have coming up here very soon uh, here in our Torah cycle. We're just before Shavuot. Where it talks about, you shall count for yourselves the day after the Sabbath from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. That's an offering done on first fruits. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. The language is very clear here in our, here in our passage. That seven complete Sabbaths to the day after the seventh Sabbath. That means the counting of the feast of first fruits must always be on the first day of the week. It must be on a Sunday on the day after a Sabbath. Seven complete Sabbaths to the 50th day. The language here is very clear. Yet we have a great number of brethren who follow the traditions of how commandments are done. in Shavuot, according to Judaism, will happen on a day other than the first day of the week at times. Now, we're not going to solve the calendar debate of conjunction, new moon, halel calendar when we start the numbering of the months. But I would hope that whenever we read these scriptures that we can clear up some of the confusion when it comes to when these holidays are kept once you've chosen a calendar and how the month begins to then understand... Look, Shavuot needs to always be on the day after a Sabbath, that this is something we're looking forward to. And so when we're trying to teach and learn how to keep these commandments and keep these festivals as best we can, we want to always keep working on that one and make sure that that is an area of confusion because of what Judaism has chosen to do, that we always want to teach what the scripture has said. Amen. Our passage continues talking about all the rest of the festivals. We talked about the three in the spring, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits. We talked about the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, which is the one that occurs very near to the summer. Four festivals, and then we have three more in the fall. And we talk about the Feast of Trumpets, where there's to be a holy convocation. So on the first day of the seventh month, the Hebrew month, you blow trumpets, have a holy convocation. The Day of Atonement, which is supposed to be most holy to the Lord. The Day of Yom Kippur, where we there's no laborious work in the language here between verses 26 and 32, are very specific for the Feast of, the, of Yom Kippur. It's actually not a feast, it's a fast. And it's a day to uh, afflict your soul, and to an offering is made before the Lord, but the language is very uh, explicit to not do any work and to truly humble yourself on that day. And then at verse 33, all the way through verse 43, is we start talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. That's a time that here, anybody who's been a part of Lion of Land Ministries for a number of years, this is a great festival and feast that we do, that we put on an event to where we leave our homes and we go and celebrate this feast. That it's an eight-day feast with two Sabbaths on each end. And it's to be a rejoice before the Lord. There's a great number of sacrifices that took place. And that this is a practicing of the wedding feast. The wedding feast at the end of the age when we get to join with the Lord. We've been talking about the house of God. We're looking to join into a relationship with God. That's what God desires. Why would he desire to dwell with us? We're an unclean people. We have have no righteousness for ourselves. But through everything we've been talking about for the last several months of the Torah portions. From the very command to build a tabernacle to all the appropriateness of what we're supposed to do to make offering to the Lord. To be clean before him. For the priests to be clean. All of that is building toward a relationship with the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That is what he desires. All of these things are all processes and procedures forming a single covenant with God between us and him. All culminating with the fact that the feast of tabernacles, the last of the commanded feasts which those that have done prophecy study believe it's the first feast we'll celebrate in the kingdom, that it will be a great wedding feast. The sukkah of the Feast of Tabernacles is the hoopah of the wedding feast at the end of the age when we will form a temporary dwelling and build a house for the first time of that first relationship between us and God. What a momentous occasion that will be. And that is what we're doing here. Whenever we celebrate these holidays, we celebrate these feasts. We're practicing, we're practicing to dwell with the Lord. We're practicing to have these great engagements and these great um, times together, holidays of rejoicing festivals. Every time your family gets together and you just enjoy each other's company, that's what we're working toward. God has prescribed a way for us to do that with the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We enjoy those things in our own personal lives with our own family members. Imagine how much greater it is to celebrate those wonderful, joyous times with family, with the almighty creator, the person who breathed life into you, the being who created everything for your life to enjoy. Wouldn't you want to say thank you to him? Well, God has given us a way and a prescription and a protocol to follow, to give thanks to him, to worship with him, to have a relationship with him and to join in one family, in one body. What an exciting thing that that is. Amen. Heavenly. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you for the Torah portion of and more. And we thank you for uh, giving us a way and a protocol and a procedure to dwell with you, to call you our heavenly father, for you to look down with love and kindness, the way a father looks down on his children. Father, I pray we continue to learn to be clean and holy before you. For those that are servants in your house, Father, I pray that we would continue to keep ourselves clean and holy and appropriate to serve you and to be that intercessor between you and the people. Lord, let there be no distraction in our homes and in our families. Let us keep ourselves clean and appropriate, Lord, so that we can continue to do your work and your good work. Let us continue to minister to the brethren to do things appropriately as you have prescribed us to do. We love you. We bless you. We thank you. We look forward to all of the appointed times that you have invited us to. We have no righteousness to commend us, Lord, but you have invited us and made a way and atonement and sacrifices and offerings that make it possible for us to dwell with you. We love you. We thank you. And what a wonderful, glorious thing that it is that you have taught us and instructed us in all your ways and in all your instructions. None of them are done away with, Lord. None of them are null and void. But to each person, Lord, your words and your commandments are eternal. Whether they were given to ancient times, to a people that is not established anymore, Father, we still can hear these words, these instructions. Take them to heart and that you can build us up in our most holy faith in you. So we love you and we thank you. In Yeshua's name we pray all of this. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
0: Shabbat Shalom, shalom.
1: Um,
0: if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the prophet Ezekiel to chapter 44 and our haftor portion for this Shabbat, is begins at verse 15, it goes all the way to the end of the chapter and our portion is just 16 verses. Now, I have approximately 30 minutes or so to share with you. And so I'm probably going to be taking like two minutes for each verse, you know, so that we use the appropriate time. This is the shortest half portion, I believe, in the entire set for the year. Um, And so as I was looking over it, I, I realized, I said, Lord, it's only going to take me two sentences to explain this whole thing. You know, because it's that short, that sweet, it's one particular topic. Uh, Just to uh, go ahead, I'll just give you the quick teaching on the Hofdorah portion. Um, uh, In in Imor, one of the things that it's known for is explaining how God would like to be worshipped. And he establishes the Sabbath, he establishes his festivals, the seven Levitical feasts are covered for us there. There's some explanation about the temple service and the worship. And the thing that ties this Haftorah into that is that this is speaking of the whole end of the book of Ezekiel is talking about Ezekiel's temple. It's a very specific temple that he was given a vision of. We have not seen that temple yet. It's, we believe it's a future temple that will be built in the millennial kingdom. When the Messiah has returned, and there's some specific instructions about how that temple will be managed and how it will be run. This portion that we have for the half Torah portion is giving specific instructions to the Levitical priests and how they will conduct themselves uh, in this Ezekiel temple, in this in the millennial temple. And so it just gives some very specific. Uh, instructions to them so you've got to step back and you've got to ask yourself alright, so this is uh, some instructions to the Levites as to what they will do in the future millennial kingdom, what does that have to do with us and how are we supposed to draw application for what it means to us now well, that's an interesting question, and that's part of the reason why I love to teach the Torah and the and the, and the prophets because the way the scripture is given to us Is It's given in a way that it builds natural questions. And if you'll allow yourself to ask some of those natural questions and pursue those questions when you're going through the study, that's how you discover and learn many new spiritual insights. You find yourself in a conversation with the Lord. So here we have this beautiful instruction for the priests, for the future millennial temple, And so, what does that have to do with us? Did you know that we have a lot of people in the world today, a lot of Christian believers that don't believe this will happen? I have a lot of Christian brethren who believe that Moses and the prophets doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. They believe that, and I'm going to quote them, they believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is it. That's it. You know, we've got it all, and uh, we don't need all that temple business. We don't need that sacrifice thing. We don't need to do all the things that God did before. We don't need Moses. We don't need the law and the commandments. We have, quote, the law of Christ, and we got it all, and it's all in this nice little neat package right here, and we've got it. We have bundled up the entire faith, the whole history of mankind, and we have the answer and by the way it does not include this stuff even though the prophet says it's into the future even though it says the messiah is going to be a part of this we don't, don't put it in that package that we've got um, I've also had um, with interest I've been reading a book that was sent to me um, I'm not quite sure what the motivation was for the person who sent me the book but It's a pretty serious treatise written by a pastor trying to explain why all of us messianics who are turning back to Moses and turning back to the commandments of the Lord and seeing the Messiah from the very beginning as creator all the way through, that that's a huge mistake. And rather than going back to the scriptures and giving a a different explanation to what we teach they've just cherry picked a few verses out of the New Testament to say this is what it is and they ignore the rest and as I was coming in in preparation to teach this Haftor portion and saw the precision and quite honestly the shortness of this it, it struck me that My goodness, we have a lot of people in the faith today, we call ourselves Christians, they flatly dismiss this and ignore this. They flatly don't believe God will be doing this or that this is what the future is going to be. And of course, you have heard me teach on this topic before at various times. We've talked about the juncture of of why we believe that our previous instruction from our Christian leaders who told us that all of this is done away with and we just now have Jesus and we of course have looked at passages in the New Testament actual words from Yeshua himself saying things don't even think that I came to do away with the law and the prophets or things like had you believed Moses you would have believed in me for he wrote of me Or things like, uh, there will be many in the last day that will come to me and call me Lord, Lord, who will not be entering the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And they will make a defense that they've done a lot of religious and spiritual things, a lot of religious things. Like casting out demons in his name, doing miracles in his name, good works in his name. And then he will say, depart from me, ye who are lawless. You're torah was. Those same folks think that grace and law are at opposite ends of the spectrum. And they fail to understand that grace was back in the Old Testament with the law. And they never had a problem. But what I've discovered is that the grace that we have today, the one that we describe today, they've redefined the, the grace from the biblical one. Now, Paul, I thought, taught grace properly because he was a Torah scholar. He said, for example, in Romans 6, he said, grace, God forbid, would ever be used or thought of as a license to go sin, to make grace bigger. That if that's your definition of grace, you don't even know what grace is. You have no idea what God's favor is that you don't merit. And they cannot fathom that you would follow the instructions of our Heavenly Father, who, by the way, is the author and finisher of of life that following his instructions would somehow be the path of life instead they think they've got a new definition for the path of life and I don't, I don't know what they think everybody was doing before you know like the first 4,000 years of, of earth and biblical history what, what did they think those people do? how did they think Moses got saved how did Abraham get saved how do we know he's going to be in the kingdom at the end You know, Yeshua spoke of him being in paradise. How in the world did he get there when it only says things like that he was obedient and he loved the Lord? I mean, he didn't have Jesus yet dying on the cross. He didn't call out, you know, and say, you know, and and you know, do the sinner's prayer that we do. What how in the world could he possibly be in the kingdom? How could he possibly get saved? Now we, who are Messianic, we know the answers to these questions. I dare say I don't. I don't know if they do. It's about relationship. You know, I mean, we use the term "being born again," being made in the image of God. If you're born again, you come into a family. You you, you know there there's. You know, <laughs> You're part of something and you have a relationship. And every one of us, uh, we have family relationship, very strong relationships. We have mother, we have a father, we have siblings, we have our own children, our grandchildren, and so forth. And, and that can't be taken away. And those are very powerful things. But at the same time, we have all of those relationships. Me, for my children, I'm sure for years, I want my children to be lawful i want them to obey the rules and not get hurt i want them to live and be successful i do not i don't know of anybody who raises a child and says i really hope this person turns out to be a thief and a murderer nobody in their right mind would say that that's a good path and that that's what we'd encourage them to do so our heavenly father has said to us don't murder and don't steal, which is the same stuff we've told our children. And yet the Christians who assert Jesus Christ, they, they, they take all of this previous loving instruction, all of this relationship stuff that has already been well established, Abraham is the friend of God, they take all of that, they dump it, and they say it's of no value. And they want to start over. They want to start over and they want to make the rules. And by the way, brethren, that is exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they want to do. They don't want to obey the Lord. So, but they can't go around saying that. What they have to do is they have to... Uh, we'll make some new rules. We'll make new rules and we'll say they're the rules of God. And we're all obeying the Lord. But but make sure... Now, you're not saved by that Okay, you're saved by faith all you have to do is say the right words about who Yeshua is about Jesus Christ say the right words join with the right people who are saying the same thing and that's it the problem though is that's going back to what Yeshua said not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord will be entering the kingdom of heaven the people who don't enter the kingdom of heaven don't have a relationship with God why don't they have the relationship with God? Because every time God says something to them, they go, no. If, if you go up to a person and you develop a friendship, a relationship with him, and every time you request him, he says, no. Every time you try to talk to him, I, I don't want to talk to you. I don't have anything to do with you. Now, now you can deal with me on my terms. You know, it's kind of one of those one-way relationships. I call them diode relationships. A diode is an electronic device that allows current to go one direction but not the other one. And so we have diode relationships. You know, people who say, under my terms, you can be my friend, but you have to do it my way. And by the way, it doesn't extend over to you. Um, I'll go to your house and party with you but do, but you're not going to come to my house and I'm, you're not going to party with me whatever you know one-way relationship and when a person stands up and says hey all of these commandments in here uh, we don't have to do these and by the way anybody that's doing them you're wrong Um First of all, there's two things at stake. One, that is a person who's in rebellion against God, who's saying no to God. And secondly, they really don't know what this says. They really have no idea what, what the commandments really are. They're, they're actually arguing against things they've been told by other people before, or they've imagined in their heart uh, about what the instructions of the Lord are, and they, and they don't want to listen. And when the moment comes that they start reading words like here, in Ezekiel 44, about something that's going to be happening in the future and what the Lord's going to do, and this is how you'll come and worship the Lord in the millennial kingdom, they immediately reject it and say, No, that doesn't fit into my scenario. So I'm dismissing all of this. Whether it be a theological argument or just flat out, they ignore it. Whatever the case may be. But we, we receive these words. Now, we're not in the millennial kingdom yet. We're waiting on a day when God restores all things to himself. That there will be a day of reconciliation. we That's our hope, our future. And as we remain here in our mortal frame, however many days that God may give to us, we walk before him. In relationship with him and part of our relationship is bound up in we do what he says and we listen to him and we don't dismiss what he says we try to understand what he says And to a certain extent, we are honest and humble, and we admit, Lord, I'm not sure I'm even doing it correctly according to your instructions. But teach me, guide me, show me, give me your Holy Spirit. Show me the path that I should be in. Give me a lamp at my feet so I don't stumble and so I can see the way so I can follow you. That's a person that has a heart toward God. That's a person who's seeking relationship with God. That's a person the scripture talks about. Those who draw near unto the Lord, the Lord will draw near unto them. Instead of going in the other direction and saying no. When you take steps to disobey the Lord, you separate yourself from the Lord. When you follow what the Lord has said, you draw near to the Lord. To try to learn his ways. To be a part of that. And it's natural along the way to say, I'm not sure how to do this, Lord. I, you know, you know, and it's, sometimes this, this walk of life is, is just constantly learning. And as you go through the different stations of life, what you learned before, all it did was enable you to get to this new station and you still have more new things to learn. Some people get to the point, though, in life, I don't want to learn anything now. I've gotten to the point where I'm satisfied with what I've got spiritually. God, I, I, don't mess with me anymore. Don't, don't compel me to do anything more. I've got you all figured out. I've got other people figured figure out. And I'm going to put you off. And, and don't mess with me anymore. Now, when a big crisis comes to my life, I'll come knocking at your door again. It's not much of a life. I don't know about you, but I'm not satisfied with that kind of relationship. I don't think God's satisfied with that kind of relationship either, to be really honest. Mind you, I don't speak for the Lord, but I can repeat a lot of things He's already said about this. So here we are, on this Sabbath, with the prophet telling us about something that will be future in the kingdom for us. And this is how we'll come and worship the Lord in that day. And it's definitely different from the day that we have today. We don't have this temple yet. We don't have the Messiah dwelling with us, right here with us. And we don't have the priests established at a level that the Levitical priests have never been before. But he says it will be happening. It will be like that in that day. If you were just to look at the parallelism, this is what he will do with the priest. Can you imagine what he will be doing with us or others in that day, in that kingdom? It will obviously be an excellent day. It will be really good. It'll be very enjoyable. It'll be pleasant we certainly won't be struggling with the problems that we have today. Um, and that is our hope. And the reason why we have that hope is because we're in a relationship and we have a reason for hope. And he's communicated to and told us what will be in the future. The good things that will be. To hang in there. To walk before him. Correctly and uprightly, it's not hard to do. It really isn't. What we have to do is we have to stop arguing with ourselves and stop saying, stop our heart from saying no to the Lord, and just start saying yes for a change. Is really what it takes. You know, as I get older and, and the faith, and and I see younger people. People now just starting to take the position of leadership in the faith as when I did back, you know thirty some forty years ago. I see them having the same struggles that I had. I wish I could pull out my little magic wand with my little six pointed star and sprinkle some stardust on them and and just fix all of that because i I, I know what what it takes. To deal with those kinds of problems. And it just takes a a big couple dashes of humility. Takes a little more trust in the Lord. Lay down your ego. Stop worrying about stuff and start believing in stuff. Look to the future where you have hope. Stop looking at the past where you made mistakes. Stop dwelling on yourself get out of yourself get involved in other people's lives get to know the Lord better do something instead of just sitting there in your own swill live you know which is what God told us to do live but I'm going to have to go through the same experience that my ancestors went through and the ancestors for them went through and what Abraham had to go through and what Moses had to go through and and until the Lord comes back and fixes this mess you want to know why God doesn't talk all the time because he's really wise and he shuts his mouth a lot not like us we have to explain everything with words sometimes we need to just shut up and sit still And let a little wisdom leap back into us. And that same simple wisdom would be, what has the Lord said? That is what we will do. Not going to argue with it. Not going to get into semantics. Semantics. Not gonna get into some alternative thing that somebody in their imagination created so that we can have some controversy, so that we can get our adrenaline up and get our BP up. You know, I'm past that. Tired of that. It's so vain. It's just so much vanity. You know, the wisest man in the world, Solomon, in his book, Ecclesiastes, concluded the whole book. I mean, he went through the whole list of everything that we discover in life. And at the end, in the last two verses of the whole sermon, you know, look, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Uh, The only thing that is left is for you to trust and believe in the Lord and obey His commandments. That's all it comes down to. Yeshua didn't come and change that counsel. He came and made it possible for us to implement that counsel. Grace is so that you can obey. You don't obey to get grace. Grace enables you to obey. But if you... Claim to have the grace of God, and yet you do not obey the Lord then. I don't know. I guess that's where grace is. You've fallen from grace. That's where you missed the whole point. You lost it. So this Hofdor portion tells us we have a future. And it says the Levites that are going to be there, you're going to be doing some very specific things. In other portions of the prophets, it says, you and I, we're going to be doing some important things. And that's what we look forward to, and that's what our hope is in. In the meantime, as the Torah portion says, let us do things as a community like keeping Sabbath. Let us enjoy the feasts and festivals of the Lord. Let us go through the cycle of the year learning each year more and more about the Lord, walking in the faith, building in fellowship, and watch the joy of our children growing up and maturing and us becoming wiser and enjoying the Lord even more so. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? I mean, that's what he set up. But but don't listen to people who argue against that. Don't listen to people who they think they know better than what the Lord has said. You know, the Lord's already warned us, you know, there's a lot of ways you can mess this up. So let's not mess it up. Let's just do the simple things. And for those who advocate that Yeshua came to do something different than what God did from creation with Abraham, or what God did with Moses and the children of Israel, they neither know the Lord, nor what the Lord did. And they do not understand what Yeshua was talking about. That's just as simple as it can be said. And so rather than listening to them because they're confused and all tied up in knots, just go back here and find out what the Lord said for yourself. You'll, you'll sort it out, I'm sure, pretty quickly. All right? Our portion is short. I have stretched out those 16 verses pretty good. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Shabbat. And thank you, Lord, for your instructions, all of your instructions in the Torah all of your instructions throughout the scripture. We know that in here is all that we need to be thoroughly prepared as godly people before you. So we thank you for that instruction. Help us to implement it. Help us to trust and to believe in you, regardless of what we see with our eyes or those that are around us. Let us just trust in you. And we thank you for that in our redemption that's given to us by Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.
1: you wah
2: Bijuneja, Pana, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.